Thanks for joining me for the latter half of Romans 5. We'll be starting in verse 12, and as always, I'll be reading in the Phillips translation. This, then, is what has happened. And I would say, and this, then, is going to be Paul's explanation for everything that necessitated the coming, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Last week, we reveled in the realities of what Jesus has given us. This week, we'll examine the roots of the reason for which he chose to come, which is, according to the very next word in J.B. Phillips' translation, sin. I'll continue. Sin made its entry into the world through one man, and through sin, death. The entail of sin and death passed on to the whole human race, and no one could break it, for no one was himself free from sin. Sin, you see, was in the world long before the law, though I suppose technically speaking it was not sin where there was no law to define it. Nevertheless, death, the complement of sin, held sway over mankind from Adam to Moses even over those whose sin was quite unlike Adam's. So, did you notice what Paul has given us here are two totally distinct periods of time. They're overlapping, but distinct. They are from Adam up till Jesus, that was verse 12, and from Adam up till Moses and the law, that's verses 13 and 14. And before we get into the message and meanings of those two distinct periods of time. And forgive me, this is probably my fourth or fifth time doing this with our anchor gathering. We have to define and understand and possibly put behind us some of our misunderstandings about the reality of sin. The word used for sin here, hamartia, was famously used before the New Testament, even before the Greek translation of the Old Testament, by a guy you may have heard of. He was once the teacher and tutor of one Alexander the Great, a gentleman by the name of Aristotle, whose, by the way, own teacher was Plato, whose teacher before him was Socrates. In his work, Poetics, Aristotle talks about hamartia in a way that I think is actually deeply helpful for our understanding of Adam, the fall, human nature, sin with a capital S, and our need for the saving work of Jesus. To Aristotle, in Poetics, hamartia is one great missing of the mark, the one great error, a tragic flaw from which all other subsequent sin, lowercase s, will come and derive. You pulled back on your bowstring, you aimed, and you missed. Nothing will ever be the same ever again. That is the heart of tragedy, of sin, of hamartia. This is the reason that Jesus had to come. Not because we're so bad, so naughty, we just need to clean up our act a little. No! We have missed the target entirely and are now flawed. Walking on a road in the wrong direction is not solved by changing pace or partner. We must be set right, set back in the right direction and permanently kept from turning back ever again. Mistakes, missteps are inevitable, but the aim has to be remade, made true. 
So, what does all that mean for Paul's two distinct periods of time? Like, what were and are the targets at which all humanity has been firing all along and tragically missing? Well, in the Jewish sense, in that period culminating with the codification of all Hebraic religious understanding, the target the Jewish people had never and would never hit was the law of Moses. It was never going to happen. But even more disastrous, more disastrous because it included all humanity in its entirety, was the fact that from the fall of Adam until the birth and life of Jesus of Nazareth, every single human being had missed the mark, been tragically flawed by their inability to walk in union with God. You see, that is the broken reality of hamartia. That is how this disease of the spirit, sin, corrupts all earthly life. And its entail is death. It holds sway over all mankind and no one could break it for no one was himself free from sin. Until, well, let's continue. Adam, the first man, corresponds in some degree to the man who was to come. And we might ask, how so? Well, in being born to showcase the full glory of God within the earthly life of man. And in being born, not of a husband's will, but by the very spirit, the breath of God. And also that he was born to rule over creation to give name and place to all the earth as a firstborn, perfectly chosen son of God. And finally, that Adam was meant to day by day walk in divine, firsthand fellowship, obedience, and then in doing the perfect will of the perfect father. So yes, Adam corresponds in some degree to the man, Jesus, who was to come. I'll keep, continue going. But the gift of God through Christ is a very different matter from the account rendered through the sin of Adam. For while as a result of one man's sin, death by natural consequence became the common lot of men, it was by the generosity of God, the free giving of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, that the love of God overflowed for the benefit of all men. You see, it's the reintroduction as a gift of all that Adam was meant to be and receive, all that he lost as a consequence of the fall and which Jesus came, this is so good, to reinvite us into. Rather than continuing the generational earthly curse of sin and death, Jesus came to reinstitute our showcasing the full glory of God within the earthly life of man. Rather than settling for our broken family systems and human-centered understandings of the past and the present, Jesus came to invite us into the family of God. Rather than being ruled over by creation, being defined ourselves by the economies of this earth, the evil one, sin, death, Jesus came <laughs> as the new firstborn, perfectly chosen son of God to restart the whole process between God and man. And finally, 
rather than walking in broken, disconnected, misunderstanding, disobedience, and perfect hamartia-like not doing of the will of the Father, Jesus came to teach us how to walk with God again. Just like he had himself once walked in Eden with that unfallen first man named Adam. Mm. I get a little excited about that. Okay, let's keep reading. Nor is the effect of God's gift the same as the effect of that one man's sin. For in the one case, one man's sin brought its inevitable judgment, and the result was condemnation. And actually, let's bear that out a little. What was the nature of Adam's sin? Like, what was the pathway of his particular hamartia, his firstborn, now universal, tragic flaw? Think about it this way. He was created for perfect union with God. Yet he engaged with his doubts about God, ate from, and then actually received the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, his disobedience opened out his whole life to the inverse of his perfect union with God. His fall was a turning around in the other direction. His curse was a total reverse of his pre-existing blessings. I'll continue. But in the other, countless men's sins are met with the free gift of grace and the result is justification before God. And so now we have to consider the new first man. Because what was the nature of Jesus's life and death? Like what was the pathway of his perfection, his new firstborn now universally available offering? Consider, he too was born for perfect union with his father and yet engaged only with the will of his father, diffused the power of evil over good. I mean, his perfect obedience opened out the fruits of his whole life so that you and I can experience perfect union with God right now. His resurrection was a rising that forever ended the fall. His blessing to us is a total return to the blessings of Eden. And listen on. For if one man's offense meant that men should be slaves to death all their lives, which we might ask, how so? How are the natural sons and daughters of Adam slaves to death all their lives? Well, look at Adam and Eve. First off, the consciousness of guilt before God creates shame and an embarrassed hiding away from him. In other words, sin automatically lowers our eyes from experience of gazing into God's eyes, who is life. Having sin, we've already lost our intimacy with life himself, but that's only the first part. Secondly, because he couldn't let them languish in unregenerate eternal life, he had to limit their days and evict them from Eden. I mean, think about it this way. Eating from the tree of life imperfect is another name for living forever in hell. All right, I'm actually going to reread that and then we'll continue on. 
For if one man's offense meant that men should be slaves to death all their lives, it is a far greater thing that through another man, Jesus Christ, men by their acceptance of his more than sufficient grace and righteousness should live all their lives like kings. Which we might ask again, how so? How are the reborn sons and daughters of God, followers of Jesus, called to, quote, live all their lives like kings? Well, look at the lives of the original disciples. First off, the reality of freedom from sin suddenly hits them by the Holy Spirit, and it creates joy and an open-hearted, relentless following after the way of Jesus. In other words, Forgiveness raises their eyes, uplifts their countenance so that they experience God, life, firsthand. Knowing Jesus, they have complete intimacy with life himself. And that's only the first part. Secondly, because they've now been made new, mind and spirit, they're also invited to extend their gaze through this life into the next. They're the ones to bring heaven to earth, they suddenly realize. Having tasted of the body and blood of the lamb, uh, being included in the tree of life already, their life now is the place where heaven is already happening. And then I want you to listen as Paul kind of continues on the same tack. Listen, we see then that as one act of sin exposed the whole race of men to God's judgment and condemnation, So one act of perfect righteousness presents all men freely acquitted in the sight of God. One man's disobedience placed all men under the threat of condemnation, but one man's obedience has the power to present all men righteous before God. Friends, I'll say this. In other words, and this is the point toward which Paul has been driving throughout this whole chapter, by the way, All history can be summed up in the following way. There are two men offering two ways of living, experience, and approach to God. One of them's dead. The other one is forever alive. And you and I may choose which path we prefer to continue walking. The first man, Adam, committed one act of sin that exposed all the whole race of men to God's judgment and condemnation. I mean, his disobedience placed all men under the threat of condemnation. The other man, Jesus, offers opportunity by his one act of perfect righteousness to be presented freely acquitted in the sight of God because his obedience has the power to present all men righteous before God. You see, These are the two divergent paths of human existence. We may languish in the way of Adam or today be swept up into the way of Jesus. Adam's way is already determined toward condemnation. Jesus's by his work is predetermined too toward life eternal. But interestingly, there's no other path offered. Like there's no third way. There's no best of both worlds approach when it comes to life, sin, death, judgment, and eternal life. Either it's the first man or the new first man, Adam or Jesus of Nazareth. All right, let's keep going and finish out the chapter. 
Now we find that the law keeps slipping into the picture to point the vast extent of sin. Because again, what verse 13 said, the law has had the effect of actually highlighting sin. The more law, the clearer our sin becomes. Yet, though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God, his grace is wider and deeper still. The whole outlook changes. Sin used to be the master of men and in the end handed them over to death. Now grace is the ruling factor. With righteousness as its purpose and its end, the bringing of men to the eternal life of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mean, what a perfect way to end this full, quite intense chapter. The law, which Jesus perfectly, personally fulfilled, is no longer part of any equation that relates to you, your life, your sin, your eternal destiny. It is finished, as he said. And though your experience of sin as your first nature pre-Jesus and as a, a sort of remnant since knowing him, it seems powerful, it's not. The grace of God, which was lavished upon you by the shedding of the blood of Jesus, is far wider and deeper and richer and more powerful than sin. You don't have to live like you used to live. You've been bought by Jesus at the cost of his own life. Your former master, sin, hamartia, which used to hand you over to death, has been destroyed. Grace is the king of your heart now. The righteousness of Jesus is being transfused into your system as a precursor of everlasting life with him. I mean, what more could we want? And you know what? I'll answer that rhetorical question on your listening behalf. The answer is nothing. There is nothing higher or better than Jesus. Thanks for listening.